Nigel Buckmaster knew how to make an entrance. When he swept into the bustling concourse at Paddington Station, the crowd parted before him as for royalty. Those close to the actor-manager gaped and gasped as he strode past. Those further away craned their necks to see what all the fuss was about. Tall, lean, and lithe, Buckmaster wore a black cloak that swished behind him, and a wide-brimmed black felt hat out of which long, lustrous, dark locks fell to his shoulders. His face was striking rather than handsome, his most significant features being a pointed chin and two large, smouldering eyes separated by a narrow, tapering nose. It was the face both of a hero and a villain, combining bravado with menace in identical proportions and exuding a sense of unassailable purpose. Contributing in equal part to their dramatic arrival was the stately leading lady whom Buckmaster led on his arm. Kate Linane was approaching thirty, but she still had the stunning bloom and beauty of a much younger woman, features glowing, eyes dancing, delicate chin uplifted with regal disdain. Blonde curls peeped out from a poke bonnet trimmed with ostrich feathers. Her light blue waistcoat was in subtle contrast to the exquisitely tailored navy jacket. Hidden beneath a decorated navy skirt that ballooned outwards, her feet tripped along so gracefully that she appeared to be gliding in unison with the majestic gait of her companion. Opened the previous year, the London terminus of the Great Western Railway was a spectacular cathedral of wrought iron and glass, where thousands of passengers came to worship daily at the altar of steam. Nigel Buckmaster and Kate Linane had momentarily transformed it into a vast apron stage on which they could perform before an open-mouthed audience. As befitted such a splendid couple, there was a sizable retinue in their wake. Where they led, other members of the troupe followed. First was a group of strutting, long-haired actors of varying ages, along with some pretty, perfumed, gesticulating young actresses, eager to grab their share of attention. Behind these preening peacocks was a motley stage crew, noticeably less well-dressed, and marked by an air of collective resignation. The cavalcade was completed by a line of porters wheeling well-worn trunks on their rumbling trolleys, or carrying costume baskets, scenery, and stage properties on their rattling carts. Buckmaster's players were on the move. They surged onto the platform as if commandeering the whole train. A strict order of precedence was observed. While the two luminaries headed for a first-class carriage, the other artists had to travel second-class, and the remainder of the company was forced to supervise the loading of the luggage and the theatrical paraphernalia before being received into the comfortless embrace of third-class. Buckmaster opened a carriage door with a flourish so that Kitty could step into the compartment. When he climbed in after her, he shut the door, flung off his hat, whisked off his cloak, and sat with his back to the engine. Kate lowered herself onto the seat opposite him. Now that there were no spectators to impress, she let her features rearrange themselves into an expression of sheer boredom. "'I hate all this travelling, Nigel,' she said peevishly. "'Needs must when the devil drives,' he told her. If the mountain will not come to Mohammed, then Mohammed must go to the mountain. Why can we not play at Drury Lane or Covent Garden? Because they don't yet deserve us, my love, he said with a grandiloquent gesture. Until they do, we must seek pastures new. Kate sighed. 
But why on earth must we do so in Wales? she complained bitterly. It's like being cast into outer darkness.